This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of January 18th. 2021, week number two with Ken Jennings at the helm. And on Monday, we have the contestants Helen Belcastro, a medical device program manager originally from West Lafayette, Indiana, Dinesh Ollier, a strategist from Corona, California, and Jennifer Lindy, an associate professor from Minneapolis, Minnesota, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories British Spycraft. All Kinds of Bars, Historical Markers, Space Podge, Celebrity Names in Common, and From D to D. In the All Kinds of Bars category, the second pick, we started out there. Um, The second pick, the clue was the bars are set about six feet apart and eight and five and a half feet above the floor in this female gymnastics event. Um, Donesh rang in and said, what are the parallel bars? Um, And was ruled incorrect. And then Helen got the rebound with the uneven parallel bars. Often a response like that would get a be more specific. um, But in this case, parallel bars is, you know, a separate male gymnastics event. There are the parallel bars and there are the uneven parallel bars. And so you don't get kind of the benefit of a a prompt. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard them called uneven parallel bars. And when she said that, I was like, oh, that's that's incorrect. That's too much. But then thinking about it afterward, I was like, well, I guess they are still parallel to each other. Mm-hmm. They're just not both equidistant from the floor. So yeah. I guess it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uneven parallel bars is what I learned to call them in like kitty gymnastics class. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I've only ever yeah. heard uneven bars. Oh, okay. But maybe I just haven't been paying attention with every Olympics I've watched in my life. Mm-hmm. How could you do this to me, Bob Costas? <laughs> we had a little bit of a little bit of reference to my recent deep dive about stars in the space podge category. Yeah. Uh, just kind of in general, you know, talking about nebulas and mm-hmm. Aldebaran, which I didn't really talk about that particular star. But yeah. Daily Double number one comes up super late in the round as the 26th pick at the $1,000 level of historical markers. Donesh finds this one uh, and wagers 1,000 of his 4,400. Jennifer has 4,800 at that point and Helen is 200 in the red. And he gets the clue. A marker near Port Royal, Virginia, identifies the site of the Garrett Farm and Barn, where this man met his end, April 26th, 1865. And he could not bring the answer to mind, um, but that is John Wilkes Booth. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Jennifer is in the lead with 6,000. Dinesh has 3,400, and Helen has 400, uh, so she's made it out of the hole. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, geography, G in quotation marks, music class, historic TV, business pairs, alliteration, and the fictional housewives of New York. That 
last one. I actually did pretty well on... I knew the $1,600 clue. Judy McCoy is wed to a Wall Street master of the universe in The Bonfire of the Vanities by him. I knew that was Tom Wolfe because we have talked about Tom Wolfe and Thomas Wolfe on the podcast. (laughs) Extensively. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Almost too much, I would say. Is is there such a thing as too much? No, it's it's, it's verging on too much. Um, But since I brought it up, you know what? We should probably just spend the rest of the episode. Just just review those two again. Yeah. Um, I I was bummed that nobody could remember who wrote The House of Mirth. Hmm. That's Edith Wharton. I have a I have an Eden War- Edith Wharton uh, flashcard, and I that just that pinged in my head, so that's what I guessed. I don't know if I would have felt con- confident enough to ring in if I were on the show, but it felt good to at least be like, yeah, that's what I thought it was. Yeah, I haven't read The House of Mirth, but I read The Age of Innocence a while, quite mm-hmm. a while back, like in college, and I liked it. I think I have Age of Innocence on my bookshelf, along with plenty of other books that I need to get to. Daily Double number two comes up really quick. It's uh, the second pick of the round. It's at the $800 level in historic TV. Helen finds it. She is at 400. Jennifer is up at 6,000. Dinesh is at 3,400. And she wagers 2,000. She gets the clue. John Lithgow is almost a foot taller than this prime minister he plays on The Crown. She gets that right. With who is Churchill? Mm-hmm. We talked about the crown last week. Yeah, we did. It's coming up a lot. It's coming up a lot. And then Daily Double number three comes up as the 20th pick at the $1,600 level of business pairs. Donesh finds this one and uh, wagers 5000 of his 9400 Jennifer's at 10,400 at this point. Helen has 7,200. And he gets the clue. In the 1930s, these two partners set up shop in a garage that's now known as the birthplace of Silicon Valley. And he correctly responds, who is, what is Hewlett Packard? Yeah. Which I I couldn't bring to mind. So good for him. Yeah. And, and good on making a big bet there, too. He, yeah, Definitely. Not- so that puts him into the lead, uh, and he maintains that lead into into Final Jeopardy. Is there anything in music class that eh. jumped out at you? They were all really easy for me, but I, I don't have a way of gauging their mm-hmm. overall difficulty. So, Yeah. The $1,600 clue, uh, Sul Ponticello is an instruction to bow close to this part of the instrument. That was a fun kind of... Uh, you could get into it kind of etymologically. Mm-hmm. The correct answer is that there is the bridge, which is, if you're not familiar, the like the little wooden piece that holds up the strings. But Ponticello may kind of ping as a bridge kind of word. From, yeah, from the Italian. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, if you have kids who learn how to play a string instrument, it's that thing that they keep breaking and knocking down. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Definitely haven't dealt with a lot of that. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Dinesh is in the lead at 18,400, Jennifer's at 15,200, and Helen's at 8,400. They get the category Movie Settings and the clue. In 2017, this New York City luxury store opened its first cafe with truffle eggs, waffles, and croissants on the menu. Uh, And they all got it right. 
Helen bet everything and said, what is Tiffany's? So she doubled up. Uh, Jennifer wagered 3500 uh, and also wrote, what is Tiffany's? And Dinesh wagered 10000 which is not a cover bet, mm. but a yep. big bet. <laughs> so, it, like, it worked out for him. Like, Jennifer made a strategic bet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, but anyway, it worked out for him. Uh, he wrote, what is Tiffany and Company? Uh, and that is correct. So he is the winner for Tuesday. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Lisa Garner, a safety engineer from Carmichael, California, Brian Chang, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois, and Dinesh Ollier, a strategist from Corona, California, whose one-day cash winnings total 28400 And we have the Jeopardy round categories. I can't decide on a synonym, three-letter responses, country roads, put something on, sounds like the movie sequel. Um, these will be unrelated films that sound like one is the sequel of the other. And historically shameless historical clues about shamelessness presented by the cast of the show shameless yes which i thought was a bit of a stretch but eh, whatever it made me sort of wonder if like what uh william h macy is like a jeopardy fan like throwing his weight around or something you know like how how did this category come to be yeah or i mean because it clearly was it was taped during COVID times because it's all mm-hmm. the it's the actors sitting in their own homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wonder if maybe this is a category that was written a while ago or, you know, whatever. And when it came time for production, well, no, it wouldn't have because it would be in the bank before before the show. I don't even know. Yeah, yeah I don't know that it, it mm-hmm. was kind of weird, but they were fine. The clues were fine. Yeah, no, they were fine. Yeah, the sounds like a movie sequel category was fun because uh, that was kind of a lateral thinking sort of mm-hmm. category. Like the $600 level. The host, starring Saoirse Ronan, did not have this Korean import and best picture winner as its sequel. Uh, and that's Parasite, which are two totally unrelated movies. Yes. Uh, but, but the titles yeah. are fun to play with. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I enjoyed that very much. We get the first Daily Double in the Put Something On category at the $800 level. It's pick number 20. Brian finds it. He is in the lead at 4400 Dinesh is at 3600 and Lisa is at 800 And Brian goes all in, yes. Ooh. And gets the clue. Whether on tops or dresses, Puff V's were one of L's nine trends dominating 2020. Uh, and he says, good lord. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he guesses what are pastries, which is so funny. Uh, and Ken quips that puff sleeves would be better on a lot of tops than puff pastries. But I think that's debatable, frankly. Hmm. I would prefer pastries to sleeves. Just, just me. Why not both? Well, you could have both. I guess pastries wouldn't do as well once you wash them. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Any discussion of puff sleeves always makes me think of Anne of Green Gables um, because Anne longs for dresses with puff sleeves. and uh, All she had to do is wait till 2020. You know what I mean? Yeah, there we go. The people who have adopted her are sort of very practical and pragmatic and puff sleeves are kind of a silly, frivolous trend. 
Um, but she does end up getting her puff sleeves dress. <laughs> we won't have those superfluous sleeves in this house. <laughs> um, anyway. I seem to remember like a like a little bit of conversation where she wants she says she wants sleeves that are so big she has to turn sideways to go through a door. <laughs> I could I could be remembering wrong, but like yeah. that. That turn of phrase got like got mixed in there at some point. I don't know. I, I really want to make fashion choices that like clearly inconvenience my day to day. That's what Listen, I want. Listen, that's the entire patriarchy. I that's fair, but also. <laughs> yeah. No. What? What? Why ask for it? Yeah. You know. I guess maybe I would maybe I would wear dresses with puff sleeves all the time if they could also have all have like functional pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, well, dresses yeah. should just have pockets anyway. They should. They should have pockets. Everything um, should have pockets. All yeah. clothes should be pockets. And the pockets on women's pants should be large enough to actually fit stuff. Yes. Like not just like a chapstick. What if? All right. What if clothes are actually just like body pockets? Because we put our bodies in them. Is clothing a sandwich? Is clothing a sandwich? <laughs> Come in here for the, the deep questions, folks. <laughs> All right. At the end All of right. the Jeopardy round, Dinesh is at 5,200. Brian's at 1,800. And Lisa's at 2,200. Uh, they get the double Jeopardy categories, ancient monuments and ruins. Talk about the weather. Libros en español. Testing, testing. Song references and anagram the first name. Brian picked first because he was in third place, and he did what he came to do, which was start at the bottom of categories. Uh, as we as we see, he went to the bottom of anagram the first name, and woof, that was a doozy. Uh, a name meaning polite and an adjective meaning typical of the countryside. Uh, that was a triple stumper. It's Curtis and Rustic. I never, never would have gone to Curtis for a name being polite. I guess maybe it's cognate with courteous? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Sure. I would not have gotten that one starting from the $2,000 level. Maybe if we'd worked down from the top, but... Maybe, but no. Probably not. Anyway, nobody gets that one. And then uh, the second pick is the Daily Double. Daily Double number two at the $2,000 level of Libros en Español. And um, since nobody got the first one, Brian is the one who picks this one. So he it's his daily double. And he wagers 2,000. He only has 1,800 at that point. So he wagers 2,000. Um, Donesh has 5,200. Lisa has 2,200. And he gets the clue from 1937, De Ratones y Hombres. Um, and he knows that one is Of Mice and Men. Yeah. And these these libros en español were originally in English. Yeah. They it, are, yeah. They yeah, are Spanish <laughs> translations of the titles of English books. Yeah, it's not they they were not actually like Spanish books. Yeah. Uh, Daily Devil number three is pick number twenty-five. It's in the ancient monuments and ruins category, and uh, just for some reason a bit of deja vu here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's at the $800 level I might already said that Dinesh finds it He is at 15200 Brian's at 15800 And Lisa's at 5800 And he wagers 10000 He's going for the throat Which honestly at an $800 level 
clue, mm-hmm. yep. it's definitely the right play. Yes. And he gets the clue. One of the seven ancient wonders was this huge marble tomb at Halicarnassus, of which some fragments survive. Uh, and Dinesh guesses what is Hadrian's tomb. But that is the mausoleum. Mm-hmm. And listeners, this is potentially triggering for Emily. Yeah. Uh, yes. So I also had a fairly late game daily double three about the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, and I also missed mine. Um, that, that's how I lost Jeopardy. Um, so, yeah. And I don't it, know. <laughs> turns out it's also how Dinesh lost Jeopardy. Yeah, I feel for you, Dinesh. I think that if I had gotten this phrasing of this clue, it would have pinged the right things for me to get mine correct. You know, it's not... it's. Jeopardy doesn't do identical questions, but uh, but yeah, no, this was <laughs> this this felt very familiar. Yeah, and so I, I'm pretty sure we've addressed this before when we've talked about it. But the mausoleum at Halicarnassus is called the mausoleum because it is it was built for a person named Mausol. Yes, Mausolus. So, Mausolus, right? Yeah. Yeah, for and by. <laughs> yeah, right. Which yeah, you've talked about. Um, so. I think what throws a lot of people off is even if they think of the mausoleum, they think they need to figure out who's in it. But in fact, that's where that name comes from, right? Because we think of other people's mausoleum, but it's taken from simply that name. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to know more than that. Yep. That's it. That's, That's the thing. That's the thing you need to know. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round... Brian has 17,000, which puts him in a lock position. Mm -hmm. Lisa has 6,600. Donesh has 6,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, the business of travel. And the clue, adjusted for inflation, the nightly rate this company put in its name in 1962 is now $51. And Donesh gets this one Correct with what is Motel 6, and he has wagered every penny he has, so he's going up to 12,000. Lisa has it correct as well um, with a 5,500 wager, so she goes up to 12,100. And then Brian has wagered 3,799, the most he can wager without risking his lock. Um, and I guess not knowing the answer, he has decided to raz Ken. <laughs> it's so good. By putting what is H&R Block. Yes, which was, if you don't so, remember, the uh, correct answer when Ken lost his 75th game. Yep. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, it's, that's good. It's That's, you know... Some some high quality Jeopardy nerd teasing there. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, no, that's that's great. I love it. So, uh, but he didn't he didn't risk too much, um, and he had a lock game. So Brian is our champion with thirteen thousand two hundred and one dollars. Yep. So that takes us into Wednesday, and on Wednesday we have the contestants: Sarah Cascone, an art journalist and critic from New York, New York; Hannah Pritchett a payment operations manager from Oakland, California, and Brian Chang, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois, whose one-day cash winnings total 13201 And the Jeopardy! round categories are 80s hits, 
Girl, you know it's true. Everybody wants to rule the world. Don't you forget about me. I ran so far away. And word up, up in quotation marks, to mm-hmm. start each correct response. Got a themed board here. Very cute. Yes, but it's 80s music, not late 90s music, so... Yeah, what do so we do I'm about useless. That? <laughs> um, no, I, I actually, I did fine on this. And, and of course, in a themed board, only, uh, only up to one category one or zero categories actually has questions on the on the theme right itself that would be pretty wild if all 30 clues were like <laughs> hope you know your 80s music <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i ran so far away turned out to be all about marathons mm-hmm. around the world thought that was kind of fun or was a question about um, the last stretch of Ber- the Berlin Marathon passes through this gate, which was closed in the early years of the race. That is the Brandenburg Gate, um, for example. You know, so like little little kind of geography tidbits around marathons. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one comes up in the everybody wants to rule the world category at the $400 level. Hannah finds this one and wagers just 500 of her 3,200. Brian has 2,600 at this point. Sarah has 1,800. We've talked about this before that I think it's a temptation to kind of think proportionally yeah. um, on daily double one wagers. But your totals in the first round are so low compared to what's at stake in the second round um, that... I think it is our position that it is almost always the right the right call to um, to go for a true daily double on that first one. Yeah. Or the maximum if you can't uh, yeah. if a true daily double is less. It's just always almost always the max is the right call. Anyway, Hannah gets the clue for adding areas such as Valencia to his realm. 13th century King James the first of Aragon was known as Jaime el this Spanish word. Um, and she guesses what is grande, um, but that is incorrect. He was uh, known as Jaime el Conquistador, uh, the conqueror. Mm-hmm. So she drops down just a little bit. In this case, the small wager paid off for her. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Brian's at 6,800. Hannah's at 4,100, Sarah's at 2,400, and we have the Double Jeopardy categories, Fictional Characters, Science Glossary, Men of Myth, Polly Esther, uh, that's two words there, um, Mm -hmm. with Esther spelled like the first name, Word Origins, and Actors Filmographies. They struggled with that Actors Filmographies category. Yes, Yes, they did. uh, yeah, and Ken kind of teased them about it a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel Sadly, like he's, we have um, to go somewhere else. <laughs> I feel like he's loosening up as a host and sort of starting to find kind of his flavor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They got the 400 and 800, but the, the 1200, 1600, and 2000 all went unanswered. Yep. That happens. They, I thought they were relatively tough clues. Yeah, they were, they were not yeah. the easiest, I would say. 
Seraph seemed. I mean, obviously everyone's nervous, but she's it. The, her nerves, I think, kind of got the better of her, especially in the double jeopardy round. Um, she had a couple of couple of misses that were uh, costly and also mm-hmm. close. Like, uh, yeah. So the word origins two thousand dollar clue. Uh, the name of this old shotgun-like firearm with a short barrel comes from the Dutch for thunder gun. She got in before Brian. I think she rang in before she really had cemented a, a response, and she guessed what is cannon. But that was mm-hmm. blunderbuss, which Brian picked up the uh, rebound. Uh, the 1600 in the science glossary was these subatomic particles are named for physicist Enrico. She rang in, and uh, she knew that it was Fermi, so she guessed what is Fermi. Fermite? Um, But they were looking for fermions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the $2,000 clue in fictional characters. The clue is this novel with a biblical title by Toni Morrison follows the life of a character named Milkman Dead. She rang in and said, what is Songs of Solomon? But it's just Song of Solomon. Just Song. Which Hannah got the rebound there. So I felt bad for her. Yeah, that that was rough. Daily Double number two is at pick number 15. It is in the science glossary category at the $800 level. Brian is at 15200 He's the one who finds it, uh, which is way over Hannah's 6500 and Sarah's 400 He wagers only 2000 He gets the clue, rocks that have been environmentally altered from other rocks make up this class, from Greek for change and form. He gets that right with what is metamorphic. That's right. Um, Daily Double number three is in the polyester category, uh, which has been all about people named Esther. Sarah finds this one, and she wagers 2200 of her 2800 um, Brian's at 16400 at this point, and Hannah is at 8500 2200 will take Sarah up to 5000 Yeah. Which I think, with the amount of money that's left on the board, she might be mathematically in contention at the end if everything goes her way. But probably a, this is a, a time for a late game true daily double. I think. Yeah. I don't think I don't think holding back the six hundred is going to do much for her. Yeah. She gets the clue. She used her experiences as a Smith College student for the character of Esther Greenwood in the Bell Jar. And you could sort of see the relief on Sarah's face. Yeah. And uh, she correctly responded, who is Plath? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sylvia Plath. So that moves her up to 5,000. Um, yes. Where she remains until mm-hmm. the end of the round. Uh, Brian, after that daily double, actually, Brian didn't get another correct response for the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the round. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he made yeah. one incorrect response and then just stayed there for the rest of the game. So going into Final Jeopardy, he is at 16,400. Hannah has moved up to 10,500, and Sarah's at 5,000. And they get the Final Jeopardy category, the Western U.S., and the clue, about 100 miles apart, they were made state capitals 10 years apart in 1854 and 1864, and both grew rapidly due to precious metals. Uh, And they all three got this correct. Which mm-hmm. was... It's impressive. It is impressive, uh, if only because of the amount of writing that had to go into it. Uh, Sarah wagered everything and wrote, What are Sacramento and Carson City? And that's correct. As Ken points out, the gold rush in California and silver silver rush in Nevada. So she moves up to 10,000. Hannah wagers just 100. 
And she gets it correct also, so she moves up to 10,600. Uh, Brian made a cover bet of 4601. Wait, she's not thinking about cover bets. Why did she wager 100? Let's see. He's If he gets it wrong, he will drop down to 11,800. Yeah. So we're looking for at least 1,300. 13, yeah, 1,300. Yeah, that's a... I, Maybe she just did not feel confident at all <laughs> and wanted to yeah. minimize the loss. I don't know. Yeah, it's a strange wager. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Brian makes a cover bet. He gets it right, too. So he is the winner. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Stephanie Thompson, a PR specialist from San Diego, California. Robert Ortega Jr., a civilian investigator from Alhambra, California. And Brian Chang, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois, whose two-day cash winnings total 34000 $202. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, one-letter stock symbols, popes, books for young adults, shapely speech, a stream of TV, and Cleveland news clues. And those Cleveland news clues, um, I am blaming them for the fact that we left four clues unrevealed in the double jeopardy round so we we did get to everything in the jeopardy round but left four clues on the board later on yeah yeah i agree they were pretty long throwback to another deep dive of mine in the pope's category thousand dollar level pope from 1492 to 1503 alexander the sixth was a member of this prominent family brian guessed who are the medicis stephanie got it with who are the borshas that's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Talked specifically about Alexander the Sixth. Yes, we sure did. I was bummed. I'm, I'm just always disappointed when people don't know books that I like. Um, <laughs> in the in the books for young adults category at the thousand dollar level, in this bestseller by Angie Thomas, sixteen year old Star Carter sees her friend shot dead by a police officer. That is the hate you give. Uh, nobody attempted that one. Um, that's a good book. I read a lot of young adult fiction, although I am, I'm not a young adult. Eh, it depends on the adult I mean, you compare yourself to. Well, <laughs> I, uh, I will be considered young in my, uh, in my professional field for at least another, another like 10 or 15 years. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, by many definitions, I, I, I'm not a young adult. Sure. Um, but that's definitely I, I, I know that that uh, that book has been very impactful for for uh, teenagers mm-hmm. in my circles. Um, but also, you know, it's a, it's a good read for an adult as well. Yeah. You know, but it's about high schoolers. Sure. Daily Double number one is in the Pope's category at the six hundred dollar level. It's pick number 22. Brian finds it. Uh, he is only at one thousand. Uh, Robert's in the lead at 4,000, Stephanie's at 2,600, and he wagers 1,000. And he gets a clue, before entering a seminary, Pope Francis once held a job as a bouncer in this capital city. Uh, And he gets it after after a moment that's Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. That's right, the Pope is Argentinian. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the... Jeopardy round. Brian is at 2,400. Robert's at 5,400. And Stephanie's at 3,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Historic couples. Amphibians. Canadian places. 
almost rhymes with purple. Five more seas of diamonds. And pop culture princesses. I thought the pop culture princesses category was fun. We had, um, uh, we needed to identify what kind of princess Xena uh, from television was. Um, she's a warrior princess. Warrior princess. Come on. Stephanie, Stephanie gets that one. There, there's, uh, there's been some like Twitter beef between her and the guy who played, between Lucy Lawless and, and the guy who played Hercules. Um, yeah. That's been enjoyable. It has been enjoyable. I don't want to get too political, but Kevin Sorbo's a moron. Yeah, agreed. And then, of course, we had um, uh, Princess Buttercup at the $1,200 level, and uh, the contestants had to identify what, what book and movie she's from. Uh, that's The Princess Bride, and Stephanie got that one. We had a question about the Broadway musical Anastasia. Mm-hmm. And then a, a Swan Lake question so i don't know what was at the 400 dollar level but i thought this was like a fun kind of well-balanced set yeah. of set of princess clues yeah although i i mean i don't know that i would call swan lake pop culture but mm, yeah that's fair whatever i mean it's not but not like it doesn't work if you'd made an explicit connection to the movie black swan maybe mm-hmm. yeah i did not know that the young like the like the initial stage of axolotl development is called the larval stage um that was in the in the amphibians category at the 400 dollars level but axolotls are the cutest animals (laughs) i'm such a fan yeah they're pretty cute they're cool yes they sure are Daily Double number two comes up in the Canadian Places category at the $2,000 level as the 13th pick. And Brian finds this one. He wagers 3000 of his 6800 um, Robert's at 1400 Stephanie's at 5200 And he gets the clue. In the 1880s, this Alberta city got the Canadian Pacific Railway. But in 1905, its rival Edmonton struck back as it became the capital. And he correctly responds, what is Calgary? Yeah. Must have made Alex feel good to, yeah. to hear them get some Canada stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, Brian was actually the only one who had correct responses in the Canadian places category. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, nobody got the $1,600 level. Uh, that daily double was Brian's, and he also got the $1,200, $800, and $400 clues there. Mm-hmm. And put a real French accent on Montreal. He did. Uh, it was almost unintelligible. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess makes it French, right? Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's <laughs> how it has to be. Yeah. And it pretty close, but Brian also was... Almost the only one who got any correct responses in the double Jeopardy round. Uh, Stephanie had that That good run in pop culture princesses early on, but then she got a few wrong and didn't didn't ring in again past pick number 40. And Robert also didn't get a single one right. Oh, no, he got one right in double Jeopardy. Yeah, he got one. Yeah. Toward the end. But this was just Brian's round. Yep. So Brian finds Daily Double number three. It's at pick number 15, so only two after the, the previous Daily Double. It's at the $1,200 level in Amphibians. He's up to 11400 way ahead of Stephanie's 5200 and Robert's 1400 And he only wagers 100 which I th- was so weird to me. I mm. It was unexpected. Yeah, maybe um, he doesn't 
feel confident about amphibians. Maybe. And he was he was doubling up Stephanie's score at that point anyway, so yeah. uh, he got the clue. Able to grow almost thirty inches, the hellbender of the central US is the largest of these amphibians in North America. Uh, and they showed a video of it. Slimy little bugger, and uh, he gets it right. That was a salamander. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Brian has a lot game with 16,300. Robert is at 1,800, and Stephanie's at 6,000. And we have the final Jeopardy category, British writers, and the clue. When Agatha Christie disappeared for 11 days in 1926, this British fellow writer tried to find her with the help of a spiritual medium. And uh, Robert wagered 223 and guessed who is Orwell. That's incorrect. A little early for Orwell. Mm. Uh, Stephanie has wagered 3,998 and correctly responds, who is Arthur Conan Doyle? I, I did not know that he was a big spiritualist, apparently, um, but he was. So she goes up to 9,998, but it doesn't matter because Brian had a lot game. He made a zero wager. He guessed who is Shaw, and that's not correct, but he doesn't lose anything. And he is our winner going into Friday. Yeah. Uh, Conan Doyle, uh, along with writing the Sherlock Holmes books, he also like engaged in kind of like amateur sleuthery himself. People had called on him to kind of like solve some mysteries uh you know like mm. we have this thing that we can't figure out will you look into it and he did and and like ken says yes a, a famous lover of spiritual fads I, that's kind of like selling it short he was actually very interested in kind of disproving those things um hmm. and so you know agatha christie went missing of course it's a mystery so he's gonna he's gonna look into it but also uh there's a story of him and like like Conan Doyle and the fairies that he was like pretty famously duped into believing that some kids had found some actual fairies, uh, hmm. even though he was skeptical at first. Yeah. It's an interesting story. That's all I have to say about yeah. it. Yeah. All right. And on Friday, we have the contestants, Jack Weller, a law student from Stanford, California, Maggie Hauska, a prospect researcher from Chanhassen, Minnesota, and Brian Chang, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois, whose three-day cash winnings are now $50,502. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, secretaries of state, nine-letter words, extreme lakes, disastrous teams, question mark, the British pantry, and collecting. I feel like Ken... Jennings has a slightly different but no less judgmental than Alex's version of the no and I can't believe you got that wrong sort of <laughs> no response. No. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> uh, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, which we which we got to hear at the $200 level of Secretaries of State. The clue there was this secretary for James Monroe succeeded his boss in the big job. And Jack guessed who is James Madison. And Ken said, no. And then it turned into a triple stumper. Madison was before Monroe. Mm -hmm. John Quincy Adams was after Monroe. Yes. I had that same thought. 
the his nose are very like mm, no <laughs> <laughs> yeah which i mean that that might be the hardest part of the job i would think it's like telling a yes. contestant they're incorrect in a way that is not mm-hmm. like you idiot <laughs> yes <laughs> right? like because of course i wouldn't know the answers either but it would still come across that way. Like, it's very hard to mm-hmm. just tell someone they're wrong in a nice way. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like Alex got a lot of um, maybe undeserved flack being superior as he told people they were wrong. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's just a hard thing to do. Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> right. We had a tough rebound in nine letter words also at the $200 level uh, the clue there was B or C but not A or E Brian rang in with what are consonants that is incorrect and then Jack got the rebound with oh yeah Jack got with the rebound with what is a consonant Yeah. and Ken gave the clarification and the apology to Brian consonants has ten letters consonant has nine then we got another, we got a reference to something we talked about. Was it last week? Two weeks ago? Whenever we were talking about bears. Oh, yes. In the collecting category, 400. Referring to the stuffed cuddly variety and not the live ones, an arctophile collects these. And Brian got that correct with bears. Uh, they were looking for teddy bears, but yeah. Mm-hmm. We briefly talked about arctos, meaning bear. That, I think that came to mind for me because we talked about it. Daily Double number one comes up as the 27th pick at the $1,000 level of Disastrous Teams, which has been all sports team names that are somehow connected to natural disasters or things of that ilk. The earthquakes, the hurricanes, etc. Brian finds this one, wagers 1,000 of his 4,800. Um, He's tied with Jack at that point, not for the last time. Maggie has 2,400. And uh, he gets the clue, SEC. In 2015, an oyster harvest was interrupted by one of these algal blooms. And he correctly responds, um, what is the Crimson Tide? Mm -hmm. That's Alabama, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know that may seem obvious to other people, but... I would think as a very uh, a a stalwart Clemson yeah. fan. No. <laughs> yes. What the what the hated enemy is. Yes. Um yeah, I I've got it now. All all this sports knowledge has been hard won and uh pretty pretty recent for me. Yeah, that's fair. So, yeah. <laughs> that's totally fair. So, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian is in the lead at 6000. Jack has 4,800. Maggie has 2,800. In the double Jeopardy round, we have the categories Dungeons and Dragons. 5E, E in quotation marks. The five in this case refers to that there are five clues on the board, not that there have to be five E's in each correct response, which uh, threw me for a loop for a second. Have you heard my third lit Paris? Plain spoken, um, plain like an airplane, mm-hmm. uh, and Bruce Willis movie quotes. That was a fun board. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Dungeons and Dragons was not actually about dungeons. I mean, it was about 
dungeons and or dragons. Right. It was not about the role-playing game. The classic role-playing game. Yes. Kyle knows, but uh, listeners may not, um, that my family played uh, a family game of Dungeons and Dragons over the Christmas break with my five-year-old and seven-year-old role-playing, as well as my 16-year-old stepson. It was interesting. Yeah. I bet it was tons of fun. (laughs) Yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, if you're if you're going to play Dungeons and Dragons, I, I would recommend including a small child. It makes it very it, make, <laughs> it makes for a unique experience. I believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. <laughs> the have you heard my third category? Uh, I thought it was I thought it ran a bit easy for a double jeopardy category. Agreed. Yeah. Um, like the two thousand dollar clue, his 1946 Third Symphony incorporates his fanfare for the common man in its finale. I I don't know for a two thousand dollar double jeopardy clue about you know like quote unquote classical music. I feel like fanfare the, for the common man is not at that level. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. just me. No, I hear you. Uh, I really I really enjoyed that we opened the round. With the Bruce Willis movie quotes um, category at the $400 level, which got really self-referential. The clue mm-hmm. there was, sorry, Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a really nice way to open the double jeopardy yes. round. Yes, it was. That's Die Hard, of course. Classic Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two is in the Lit Paris category at the $1,200 level. It's pick number 18. Jack finds it. Uh, he's in third place at 7,600, Maggie's at 8,000, and Brian's at 13,600. And he wagers 4,000. And he gets the clue 2020 saw the release of The Mirror and the Light, the end of Hilary Mantel's trilogy about this advisor to Henry VIII. Uh, and he takes a pause, but he gets it right with who is Cromwell. Mm-hmm. Referring, of course, to Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell. Who I always forget was a person. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was a whole entire person. <laughs> he was one complete <laughs> man. <laughs> Separate and distinct from Oliver Cromwell, who was also a person. Also, <laughs> ostensibly an entire human. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Daily Double number three comes up as pick number 21 so uh just three clues later in the dungeons and dragons category at the 1200 dollar level and jack finds this one as well and he wagers four thousand dollars again brian and maggie's scores have not changed at this point um jack has been the only one to get in in the intervening clues Mm -hmm. he gets the clue in 1513 accused of being part of a conspiracy Niccolo Machiavelli was thrown into a dungeon in this city and he correctly responds what is Florence Um, Ken notes that it seemed he was guessing but he had guessed correctly yeah I also was not confident which city I was supposed to associate Machiavelli with I mean he the only city I associate him with is Florence, so that's the only thing I would have guessed. Um, mm-hmm. He he wrote The Prince for Lorenzo the Magnificent de' Medici. Mm. 
Right. So, of course. Are, of course, the Florentine family. So Yeah. Yes. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Brian is at 18,800. Maggie's at 10,000. And Jack is also at 18,800. So we have a tie mm-hmm. for first place going into final. They get the final Jeopardy category statues. And the clue, statues honoring this man who was killed in 1779 can be found in Waimea, Kauai, and in Whitby, England. Maggie responded, who is Crispus Attucks? Which is not correct, and she had wagered everything, so she dropped down to zero. Jack wagered everything and responded, who is Cook? Crossed out Captain. I mean, he was a captain, but but that's correct. Listeners of the podcast might remember that not too long ago, uh, I did a deep dive on the history of Hawaii, which featured Captain Cook mm-hmm. and his death in Hawaii. Brian... Also bet everything and also got it correct. So we went to a tiebreaker. This is the first one we've done on this show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so thrilling. Let's note for a moment, both Jack and Brian got it right. So it was not relevant. Um, But if you are that third place contestant and the other two contestants are tied, you probably want to make a zero wager. Yeah, because they're going to be betting big. Because if you are tied... For first, your correct move is to bet everything. Yeah. Uh, and that means that if you're if you're the the odd one out who is trailing, um, if either or both of the other contestants get it correct, um, then you are not going to win. Yeah. Your only chance of winning is if both of them miss it. Mm-hmm. And then both of them will drop to zero and, and you, you will win. win as long as you didn't wager everything. Um, yeah. But zero is probably your your best bet. Anyway, yeah, so we go to a tiebreaker, and uh, the way the tiebreaker works is that they will reveal one category followed by a clue, and whoever rings in and correctly responds first wins the total that they've tied at and the game. Behind the scenes, we were told that if it happens that no one correctly responds to a tiebreaker clue, they will give you another one and they're only going to broadcast the tiebreaker that results in a winner. Mm. So the tiebreaker category is history. And the clue is in October, 1961 Stalin's body was removed from display in this other man's tomb. Brian rings in first and correctly responds who is Lenin. And that makes him the winner uh, with a four day total of $88,102. Yes, indeed. And man, I understand that they wanted, like, they do the tiebreaker to make wagering a little more interesting and make it a little more exciting and, and all that. But, like, man, that's got a sting for Jack. Yes. Like, 37600 and you go home with $2,000 and mm-hmm. not a win. Oof. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That's rough. That's rough. But we know it going into it. It's, everyone knows yes. the game. That's right. And the the rules change, um, forbidding ties, I think can be traced to a few too many Jeopardy contestants figuring out that wagering to tie was strategically wise, um, which led to, you know, 
too many ties, which then messes up their like their contestant calendar because you need a different number of contestants than you'd planned on needing. Mm -hmm. I've heard people say, oh, it messes up their budget. I think, honestly, that the (laughs) prize winnings are a small portion of the overall budget, is my guess. Yeah, that's Um, that's not the thing breaking the bank. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, no, I think I think um, it, it was a situation of the contestants being a little too smart for their own good and mm-hmm. Jeopardy needing to institute a rules change, uh, which goes back to, I think, 2014, something like that. All right. So that's the end of the week. Brian is a four day winner, fairly dominant through his games. And uh, we'll mm-hmm. see if he locks in that fifth win on Monday. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to be pulling for him. I, uh, I think so, too. I like Brian. I enjoyed watching yeah. him play. And I think his chances are good. You know, he gets to, we don't know if he's taking a break or if he's going to the hotel and coming back the next morning, but right. I feel like you come back kind of fresh on Monday, you know, uh, that the chances of uh, the Friday winner winning on Monday are, are pretty solid. Yeah, because there's no matter what, there's going to be a fresh slate of contestants coming in for that first game who have not seen anything except unless you're one of the people who didn't get to go the day before. Uh, this is this will be week three of Ken Jennings, so I'm assuming that he'll have had a break at this point. Yeah. Uh, if they're doing a two-day two, two day taping week, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, this is the time, listeners, where we take a break. We remind you that we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, you can find, at this point, the year-old uh, Jeopardy Goat <laughs> tournament recaps and analysis, uh, among other things, like an outtakes reel and uh, various things uh, that we decided to put up. And we'll probably put more stuff up eventually, so you can check that out if you want to support us financially. Uh, but also, we want to take this time to just encourage you to, if you already are doing so, continue supporting things that are important beyond us and a podcast and Jeopardy, uh, whether that is in your community or uh, in the nation at large. Mm-hmm. We're going to point you again in the direction of communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com. Those causes are still mm. useful and important. Also, continue to wear your mask. Yep. And get your vaccination when it's your turn. Please, please, please go ahead and do the thing. Yeah. All right. Emily. What are your deep dive guesses? All right. Are we talking about John Wilkes Booth? We are not. Okay. I felt like giving more attention to Confederates right now is not a great idea. Fair. Uh, Are we talking about the Golden Triangle? We are not. It did pique my interest, but it's not what I landed on. Okay. Uh, What about Caligula? None of my (sighs) guesses are things we should be giving attention to. Oh, I did it! Of course it's Caligula. Man! Yay! Ah! Caligula means little boot. Oh, great. And that's what cool. I've got. So. Do, you wanna, do you wanna do the whole deep dive? Because that's basically all I have. <laughs> no, that, that was it. That was it. That's what I've got. That's the deep Well, that's dive. all Caligula I've got too, Emily. So what are we supposed to do now? Uh, yeah, no, I'm gonna talk about uh, talk a bit about Caligula. The clue is, uh, it's from the historically shameless category uh, in the Tuesday game. $1,000 level. William H. Macy presented the clue. Rome's citizens must have rethought the whole one-man rule thing when this third emperor gleefully abused his power by making senators run beside his chariot and dissolving valuable pearls in his drinks. Uh, that That is Caligula. And um, made me realize I was like, oh, I had no idea who's the third emperor. Oh, I actually have no idea what the order of the emperors are. And I really don't know much about Roman emperors. 
So I'm going to talk about Caligula and a little bit about the order of the first uh, Roman emperors just to get a little more context for it. So here we go. So some background. Modern historians conventionally regard Augustus as the first emperor, whereas Julius Caesar is considered the last dictator of the Roman Republic, a view having its origins in some of the Roman writers like Plutarch, Tacitus, and Cassius Dio of whom I don't really know much about, but I know they are Roman writers. Uh, however, a lot of Roman writers uh, other than them, like Pliny the Younger and Suetonius and Appian, as well as apparently most of the ordinary people of the empire, thought of Julius Caesar as the first emperor. So there's, I guess, debate about who was actually first the first emperor and where that title belongs. At the end of the Roman Republic, no new and certainly no single title indicated the individual who held supreme power. The word emperor can be seen as an English translation of the Roman word imperator. Um, if it is, then Julius Caesar had been an emperor, like several Roman gem generals before him. However, there was not really a consensus at that time as to like one person being in charge, uh, so Julius Caesar had kind of like accrued a lot of power and a number of titles, but there was still power in the Senate. There was still titles and, and positions outside of himself that could make decisions. So whether or not he was actually emperor is like, you know, it's debatable. But he did hold specifically the, the office of dictator <laughs> and was appointed dictator in perpetuity in uh, 45 B.C. In his will, he appointed his adopted son, Octavian, as his heir. And on Caesar's death, Octavian inherited uh, his father's property and lineage and the loyalty of most of his allies. Uh, and then through the formal process of senatorial consent, uh, he gained more titles and offices that had accrued to Caesar. And then after Octavian's victory over uh, Mark Antony at Actium, uh, he essentially consolidated all his power. That was the last effect, the last real opposition to his supremacy. In 27 BC, Octavian appeared before the Senate and offered to retire from active politics and government. They didn't only say no, uh, but they gave him more powers and made them lifelong powers, awarding him the title of Augustus, which is the elevated or divine one. Uh, and so he stayed in office until his death. Really, through, through those actions, Octavian Augustus, in a lot of ways, was the first real emperor. A lot of times I think it's portrayed that like Julius Caesar marched into Rome and all of a sudden he was the one man in charge and no one else could do anything. Like the, the Roman Senate was still powerful. When Augustus died, it could have been possible to actually truly restore the Republic. Um, but instead, he Augustus had actively prepared his adopted son Tiberius to be his successor and pleaded his case to the Senate for inheritance on merit. Uh, eventually, the Senate did confirm Tiberius as princeps which is one of the titles that the emperors usually held. It just means, like, the first. Uh, it comes from the Republic times. And once in power, Tiberius took a lot of pains to observe the forms and day-to-day -day substance of Republican government, even while consolidating power and, like, maintaining an empire. So Tiberius was the second emperor, the one after, after Augustus Caesar. Uh, and the emperors, like I said, usually held the titles of Imperator and Princeps. So Caligula was the third emperor. Uh, he's formerly known as Gaius, Gaius Julius Caesar, or Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. 
He ruled from only 37 to 41 AD. He only ruled for about four years. He was the son of a popular Roman general, Germanicus, and Augustus's granddaughter, Agrippina the Elder. Uh, he was born into the first ruling family of the Roman Empire, which is conventionally known as the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Germanicus's uncle and adoptive father, Tiberius, succeeded Augustus as emperor of Rome in 14 AD. And although Gaius was named after Gaius Julius Caesar, he acquired the name Caligula, which means little soldier's boot, from his father's soldiers during their campaign in Germania. Germanicus died at Antioch in 19 AD, at which point Agrippina returned with her six children to Rome, uh, but she became entangled in a bitter feud with Tiberius, and the conflict eventually led to the destruction of her family, with Caligula as the sole male survivor. He eventually accepted an invitation in 31 AD to join the emperor, Tiberius, on the island of Capri, where Tiberius had uh, moved five years earlier. And then after the death of Tiberius, Caligula succeeded as the third emperor in 37 AD. Uh, it's speculated uh, from the writings of Suetonius that Caligula's father, Germanicus, was poisoned in Syria by an agent of Tiberius, because Tiberius viewed Germanicus as a political rival. Again, Germanicus was a very popular general in Rome. And after that, they moved back to Rome, but then Agrippina was banished on charges of treason. There was a lot of charge of treason, uh, we found, we'll find out, and a lot of treason trials under Tiberius. So when Caligula moved to Capri in 31, he was remanded to the personal care of Tiberius, and it surprised a lot of people that Caligula was spared. But according to historians, he was an excellent natural actor, and recognizing danger, he hid all of his resentment toward Tiberius. Uh, someone, an observer, is said to have said of Caligula, never was there a better servant or a worse master. Uh, during this time, Caligula married, though uh, his wife died in childbirth the following year, and he uh, befriended the Praetorian prefect Navius Saturius Macro, uh, who became an important ally of his. And Macro was part of the Praetorian Guard, so one of the highest-ranking protectors of the of the emperor. And Macro spoke well of Caligula to Tiberius, which may have helped uh, quell any kind of suspicion that the emperor felt. When Tiberius died in March of 37 AD, his estate and the titles of the Principate were left to Caligula and Tiberius's grandson Gemellus, who were to serve as joint heirs. It's suspected, some some writers claim, that Macro smothered Tiberius with a pillow to hasten Caligula's ascension, uh, while Suetonius writes that Caligula himself may have carried out the killing, um, but no one really knows. Backed by Macro, Caligula had Tiberius's will nullified with regard to Gemellus on the grounds of insanity, uh, but otherwise carried out Tiberius's wishes. So at that point, Caligula uh, became the sole heir accepted the powers of the Principate and was conferred by the Senate uh, and entered Rome on 28th of March amid a crowd that hailed him as our baby and our star, among other nicknames. Uh, mm. At the time, he was admired, apparently, by a lot of people in the Empire because he was the son of uh, Germanicus and because he was not Tiberius. <laughs> people didn't like Tiberius. Mm -hmm. And uh, one writer, Philo, describes the first seven months of Caligula's reign as completely blissful. Um, it's said that his first acts were generous in spirit, uh, though they may have been more political in nature. Uh, he granted a lot of bonuses to the military, including the Praetorian Guard, 
inside and outside of Italy. He destroyed Tiberius's treason papers and declared that treason trials were a thing of the past. And he recalled those who had been sent into exile. He also helped those who had been harmed by the imperial tax system, banished certain sexual deviants. I'm not, I did not find more details on that. Hmm. And put on lavish spectacles for the public, including gladiatorial games. In October of 37, he fell ill or perhaps was poisoned. He soon recovered, but many believe that the illness turned him toward the diabolical. At that point, he started to kill off or exile those who were close to him or who he saw as a serious threat. He had his cousin and adopted son, Tiberius Gemellus, executed. He had his father-in-law, Marcus Junius Solanus, and his brother-in-law, Marcus Lepidus, executed as well. Uh, his uncle Claudius was only spared because Caligula preferred to keep him as a laughingstock. Uh, he exiled his sisters... And he hated being the grandson of Agrippa and slandered Augustus by repeating a falsehood that his mother was actually conceived as a result of an incestuous relationship between Augustus and Augustus's daughter, Julia. So things turned kind of bad real quick. In 38, he focused his attention on political and public reform. Uh, he published the accounts of public funds, which up to that point had been private. He did aid those who lost property in fires, abolished certain taxes, and gave out prizes to the public at gymnastic events which I, I thought that was interesting um he also allowed new members into the equestrian and senatorial orders in rome there was kind of a caste system of sorts and so he was a he allowed some movement between that he also restored the practice of democratic elections but some writers wrote that though delighting the rabble uh, this grieved the sensible who stopped to reflect that if the offices should fall once more into the hands of the many, many disasters would result. Uh, which I think is the whole, I don't know, <laughs> that's the whole attitude of, of people who think they're better. Anyway. However, during that same year, he was criticized for executing people without full trials and forcing the Praetorian prefect Macro, who had been his ally before, to commit suicide. In 39 AD, a financial crisis emerged. Um, some accounts claim that Caligula was just wasting money, had, had emptied the coffers of the empire. And some ancient historians state that he began falsely accusing, fining, and even killing individuals for the purpose of seizing their estates. Caligula did ask the public to lend the state money. He levied taxes on lawsuits, weddings, and prostitution, lumping those all together. And he also began auctioning off the lives of gladiators at gladiator shows, which feels really bad. Yeah. Wills that left items to Tiberius were reinterpreted to leave them instead to Caligula, and centurions who had acquired property by plunder were forced to turn the spoils over to the state. Kind of turned people against him after that initial, initial, you know, boon. Mm-hmm. Some historians have shown skepticism, however, uh, toward the large number of, like, the large amount of money that some ancient writers said he squandered because when Caligula's successor, Claudius, came to power, he was able to donate uh, 15,000 sesterces to each member of the Praetorian Guard, suggesting that perhaps the Roman treasury was actually solvent and not empty. During this time, a brief famine also occurred, possibly caused by the financial crisis, but Suetonius, the writer, claimed that it was from uh, Caligula's seizure of public carriages. And Seneca claims that it's because uh, he had repurposed grain boats for a pontoon bridge, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, during his reign, he also made a number of construction uh, projects, improved the harbors at Regium and Sicily, allowing increased grain imports from Egypt. They may have been in, in response to the famine. He completed the Temple of Augustus and the Theater of Pompeii. 
And he began the aqueducts Aqua Claudia and Anio Novus, which Pliny the Elder considered engineering marvels. Uh, he also built a large racetrack known as the Circus of Gaius and Nero, and had an Egyptian obelisk, now known as the Vatican Obelisk, transported by sea. In 39 AD, he's, his relations with the Roman Senate deteriorated, and so Caligula uh, reviewed Tiberius's records of treason trials and decided, based on their actions during these trials, that a number of senators were not trustworthy. Uh, he made new investigations and trials. This is where we get the Jeopardy clue. Um, he forced some senators to wait on him and run beside his chariot. Hmm. At this point, a number of conspiracies and plots to murder him uh, began unfolding. During his reign, also, there was expansion into Mauritania, which is not the same as the country now, but similar. It's, you know, northern Africa, and also into Britannia. Uh, this was the beginning of the of the campaign into Britannia. During his reign, uh, he began claims of divinity. It is said that at one point, when he was hosting some client kings and they were arguing about their nobility of descent, he allegedly cried out the Homeric line, let there be one lord, one king. It was kind of during this time that, that the Roman emperor really started taking on the idea of being both divine and human. Previous emperors had sort of, kind of, hinted at it, Kind of a little bit. They had certainly allowed members of the Empire to say that they were divine, but they had never, like, put themselves out there as someone to worship. Uh, but Caligula was the one who first had people worship him as a tangible living god. Which, you know, you could see being a bit of a problem. Yeah. There are accusations of him being insane. There are accusations of incest with his sisters. Or that he turned the palace into a brothel. Or promised or planned to make his horse in Catatus a consul and actually appointed him a priest. These are spurious, but um, they're out there. Mm -hmm. So Caligula's harsh actions toward the Senate, like I said, led to some conspiracies. And uh, there were several failed attempts, but eventually officers within the Praetorian Guard led by Cassius Chiria succeeded in murdering him. It was planned by three people, but many in the Senate and the Equestrian Order were said to have been informed of it and involved in it. In 40 AD, Caligula announced to the Senate that he planned to leave Rome permanently and move to Alexandria in Egypt, where he hoped to be worshipped as a living god. <laughs> the prospect of Rome losing its emperor and thus its political power was the final straw for a lot of senators. Uh, such a move would have left the Senate and the Praetorian Guard powerless to stop his repression and debauchery. And so Chiria convinced his fellow conspirators to put their plot into action. 22nd January 41, Cassius Tria and other guardsmen accosted Caligula as he addressed an acting troop of young men beneath the palace. Details recorded on the events vary somewhat from source to source, but they agree that Tria stabbed Caligula first, followed by a number of conspirators. Suetonius claims that his death resembled that of Julius Caesar. He states that both the elder Gaius Julius Caesar and the youngest Gaius Julius Caesar uh, were stabbed 30 times by conspirators led by a man named Cassius. By the time Caligula's loyal Germanic guard responded, the emperor was already dead, and then they went on a rampage, attacking the assassins, the conspirators, innocent senators, and bystanders alike. Ugh. The underground corridor where this happened, beneath the imperial palaces on the Palatine Hill, uh, were discovered by archaeologists in 2008. Uh, the Senate attempted to use Caligula's death as an opportunity to restore the Republic. Chiria tried to persuade the military to support the Senate, but the military really liked the idea of imperial monarchy. While it was up in the air, the assassins killed Caligula's wife, 
and his young daughter to try and like remove that monarchy, but they weren't able to get to Caligula's uncle, who was uh, hidden away by the Praetorian Guard until uh, he could be confirmed as the next emperor. There's a story of Caligula claiming a bunch of boats and creating a pontoon bridge and then riding his horse across that bridge because there was a prophecy during Tiberius's life that, or, or some, some claim by, by an oracle that Caligula has as much chance of being Roman emperor as he does of riding his horse across the bay. Uh, hmm. So he did it. <laughs> Just to prove it wrong. But that really showed them. Yeah, yeah. At that point, it really mattered. Uh, so there we go. That's, that's Caligula. Uh, only four years, but clearly made a big impact. Um, little trivia, he like you know he is also named Gaius Julius Caesar. And uh, yeah, I mentioned the Julio-Claudian dynasty, that those are the first five emperors of the Principate, which is the name sometimes given to the first period of the Roman Empire. Uh, so it began with Augustus Caesar, or who was called Octavian, followed by Tiberius, followed by Caligula, or Gaius, followed by Claudius, his uncle, and then uh, after Claudius came Nero, who we could also get into, but mm-hmm. Caligula only served for, served for less than four years. The other one served for at least 13 years. And then after that, we have the year of the four emperors and the Flavian dynasty and a bunch of other dynasties for, you know, hundreds of years. So there you go. All right. Caligula and some Roman emperors. Wow. All right. I know a lot more about Caligula now than I did when we started. Oh, my gosh. Me too. I was like, yeah, I knew I knew people didn't like him. Mm-hmm. He, he was kind of mean. That's all I knew. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for a quiz? I'm always ready for a quiz. Okay. This one is about Roman emperors. Okay. Tangentially. Question one. Caligula began the conquest of Britannia, which was completed by Claudius. The fifth emperor, Nero oversaw the most significant uprising in first century Britannia, which was led by what Celtic Iceni queen? Oh. Trying to even figure out a viable guess, but I'm not sure I have one. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I couldn't come up with a way to like hint at it. So I, this is kind of a no idea you don't. Uh, it's, that's Bodica. Or Bodicea, depending on who you're talking to. If you've ever heard uh, of her. I think I've seen that in writing, but there's there's like about a 0% chance I was ever going to produce that name or anything mm. close to it. Now that you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen that once or twice, yeah. two or three times. But yeah, no, I, I, I didn't know that. She was pretty cool. That's okay. Figured that was going to be the, the most obscure one. All right, here we go. Question number two. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. For two points each, name the seven hills of Rome. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get the hard ones out of the way first. <laughs> uh... I didn't know if maybe you knew these. <laughs> no, I don't think I do. Oh, goodness gracious. Ah, uh, the seven hills of Rome. I've definitely heard some of the names of them before, but I don't think I can bring them to mind. Um, 
Is Palatine one? It is one. It is the most famous hill. Okay. The location of where the city of Rome is thought to have been founded. Okay. Along with Palatine, the word Aventine is coming to mind. Is, is that and that thing? is correct, Aventine. Try that one. Yeah. All yes. right. I think that's all I've got. <laughs> okay. Dasher and Blitzen. Um, so, uh, no, uh, Valentine. No, you, I'm kidding. Um, you're not bad um, with with thinking with going with the Ein idea. Four right. of them are Ein. So you got the Palatine. You got the Aventine. There's the Capitoline, the Esquiline Hill, the Celian Hill, Quirinal Hill, and the Viminal Hill. Uh, I don't really have a lot okay. of information about them, but I figure it's a list of seven things might be a thing that trivia people know. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, but you got two of them, which I, I got two of them. I gotta say is probably more than most people. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, so you're up to four points. Uh, those I, other five. Again, I think those were the hardest ones. Okay, well, we'll see about that. Okay, question three. Speaking of emperors, male emperor penguins lose nearly half of their body weight while doing what? Meanwhile, the females are off gorging themselves. Typical. <laughs> they, like... They, they, like, guard the eggs. They, like... It's not nesting because it's not really a nest, but like mm-hmm. they, they, yeah, they, they watch the eggs. They, right? Yeah. That, is that what yeah, you're going they, for here? Yeah. They hold the eggs and incubate them. Yeah. They, yeah. they sit there incubate. for months. That's the, there we go. It, listeners, it's very late where we're recording. <laughs> um. No, I, I mean, I, yeah, you're not wrong. So yeah, you got it. Yeah. They, yeah. they, the male emperor penguin. So they, the female lays the egg and then plops it on the male's feet and the male incubates it, and yeah. of course, the and that's when the female will go off and like eat and build up their fat reserves for the year. Yeah, yeah nice, cool, well done. Fourteen points. Incubate, incubate <laughs> is the word I was looking for. <laughs> yes. All right. Question All right. four. It would not be a Jeopardy podcast if we didn't have some initials to Roman numeral math. So here we go. I'm looking for the last initial of old-timey film producer Louis B. Plus Einstein's symbol for the speed of light. Minus a well-known French fashion house and luxury goods company founded in 1854. All of that multiplied by the homophone of a sailor's response to a captain's order. Is the sailor's response... One syllable or two? Two. Okay. <laughs> Multiplying it by one would not be... <laughs> that's fair. That's a good... That's a fair I, question, though. That, all right. What was the first thing again there? The okay, old-time... Uh, old-timey film producer Louis B. What's the initial of his last name? Oh. All right. Um, that was... Okay. I am not confident about the pro- f- uh, the film producer, but I think that's an M. The speed of light is definitely C. I think you're going for Louis Vuitton with the fashion house, and then the homophone is II. So that is 
1,000 plus 100 minus 55 times 2. There are parentheses around this whole first section, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so that is 2,090. You got it. Yes! Nice. Ah! Well done. Well done. Yeah, those you, you got it on the nailed it on the head. The film pro, who is the film producer? Louis B. Mayer. Yes, okay. All yeah. right. I couldn't quite bring a name to mind, but I thought it would be a rom- uh, M sounded likely um mm-hmm. because I thought it would be another one of the Roman numerals that was not C, L, V or I. Right. Um which left me with M D or X, um, and uh, thinking about MGM made me think, I think it might be an M. It, well, you got it, because that's... All right. <laughs> that, he's yeah. the guy. Yep, he's the guy. All right. Great. <sighs> well done. I, I, that that one had me sweating a little bit. <laughs> I could tell, but you, you worked through it completely. That's really, really good. Okay, question five. What I'm about to tell you is the synopsis of what classic film? Overwhelmed by her suffocating schedule, touring European princess Anne, played by Audrey Hepburn, takes off for a night while in Rome. When a sedative she took from her doctor kicks in, however, she falls asleep on a park bench and is found by an American reporter, Joe Bradley, played by Gregory Peck, who takes her back to his apartment for safety. At work the next morning, Joe finds out Anne's regal identity, and bets his editor he can get an exclusive interview with her, but romance soon gets in the way. All right. That's Roman Holiday. That is Roman Holiday. Yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> One question came to me easily and without forgetting the word incubate. That's okay. Uh, I also <laughs> wanted to include that. I think I mentioned this on the podcast, but that was playing in the like hotel bar of the Culver Hotel on the, the night we arrived for the um, Tournament of Champions. Oh, nice. So that particular movie will always be like, oh, that's a Jeopardy thing. It will always be associated with Jeopardy. All right. Nice job. You have, let's see, you're at 44. Yeah. Nice. All right. The final uh, category is books, TV, and almost movies. Books, TV, and almost movies. Let's wager 43. Okay. John Hurt played Caligula in what 1976 BBC miniseries based on a, no- a 1934 novel by Robert Graves about Caligula's uncle. Oh. In 1937, abortive attempts were made to adapt the book into a film by director Joseph von Sternberg. It was starring Charles Lofton. Hmm. Um... I'm not sure any of that helped, okay. but it's written in the form of an autobiography. If that helps. Okay. All right. Yes. All right. Cool. Is it I Claudius? It is I Claudius. Yes. <sighs> there you go. Nice. Um, 
which initially came to mind as I Spartacus, um, <laughs> which would have been a very embarrassing miss. <laughs> it's like, no, no, not quite, Emily. <laughs> nice. <sighs> well done. 87 points. Yeah. That was a challenging quiz, and I got very lucky a number of times. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. You got to gotta know um, something to get lucky. Yeah. No, but that that was that was a great quiz. I I love the uh, I love the Roman numeral math. Thanks. I felt I felt really proud of myself for thinking like, oh, I should do that. That's a Jeopardy yes, thing. You should. No, that was that was great. Thank you, Kyle, for uh, for your deep dive and uh, for potting with me as always. My pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Lovely to be here with you talking about Jeopardy. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or a review if you wouldn't mind. Check out our Patreon if that's of interest to you. Um, we're on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash potent potables. And uh, if that's not of interest to you, you can still tell your friends about us. You and they can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy! recaps. And uh, are we having a guest next week? We are! We're having Zach Newkirk next week. That's right. We will have, I guess, returning champion Zach Newkirk <laughs> because he left when they went on hiatus for COVID. And uh, yeah, he'll be coming back next week uh, on the show, right? That's right. He will be back, I believe, on I think on Thursday he'll huh. be his episode Great. will air or we'll see it. We'll see if it's episodes. Sure. Um, yeah. But we'll see him back and then he will be on the pod next week. That's a good reason to make sure to subscribe. Yeah. So until next week, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.